I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is Brett Johnson. Brett is a graduate of Brown University, where he received a BA in history. He and his twin brother, Grant, were also NCAA athletes while at Brown, competing on the rowing team. Brett went on to receive his MBA at Pepperdine University and is a graduate of the Harvard Business School Executive Program. Brett is the CEO of Benevolent Capital and is the founder and partner at Fortuitous Partners. He is the chairman of Rhode Island Football Club, the director and shareholder of Ipswich Town Football Club in England, and Phoenix Rising Football Club in Phoenix, Arizona. I think this conversation is going to be fascinating and informative, so let's jump right in. Brett, thanks for taking time to be with us today. Man, you got a quite an impressive background there, and I'm guessing you like football. You you, you make me sound you make me sound impressive. Uh, thanks, Bob. What what an honor to be on this show. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to uh, diving into your fascination with football. I'm, I'm curious, you know, is this something that you were always wanting to do as a, like a, a young lad as you were growing up? I mean, you, you have a sports background. I know you and your brother were rowers in high school and then were rowers and NCAA athletes at Brown. Is this did, your origin story? Did you always want to be involved in professional sports or is this something that you kind of, you know, happened upon and saw a great opportunity? I just, I'd love, love for you to take us back there and, Kind of give us some insights on how you started this phenomenal career. Yeah, so just the quick answer, it's more certainly more the latter uh, in terms of uh, kind of recognized late that there was an opportunity here, and I'll, and I'll kind of expl- explain how that came about. But, um, you know, as you highlighted, um, you know, was an athlete. I, I played soccer. Grant and I grew up in New York City, as they describe it, the mean streets of the Upper East Side. So I, I, I did play soccer or football, um, you know, as, as they, our friends overseas refer to it, in New York City. And then we ended up going to a boarding school in Connecticut. And uh, I just realized that the rest of the world was playing a, a different sport. They were so much better than I was. And so kind of pivoted, you know, and, and Grant and I both decided to row, you know, had a good career there, et cetera. But I always loved the sport. Um, and for me, it was, it began after graduating from Brown, I, I ultimately ended up working for a quasi family company. That's how I got into YPO. Um, it was a company called Targus. My, my, our father, uh, was very involved with the company. He didn't found it, but, but sort of right time, right place. I joined my dad in that endeavor. And at an early age, I ended up being sent to London to run all the international business. And uh, and living in London and traveling all over the world, I saw firsthand, as I describe it, the religion by which the rest of the world reveres the other football, meaning soccer. I, I had a front row seat to the Premier League, et cetera. And I also started recognizing soccer was the best icebreaker from a business perspective. I would literally be somewhere overseas with a bunch of foreigners, as you know, you're with a factory or with a new retail account, whatever it would be. and I often found that if I brought up soccer, it would break the ice. It, it was such a great way, you know, to to get people to start to talk about their their favorite clubs, et cetera. And so anyway, long story short, I was brought back to the States to run all of Targus and we sold the business and Grant and I started our private equity company called Benevolent Capital. Um, and about uh, nine years into Benevolent Capital in, in 2014, I had an, a, an entrepreneurial epiphany. Um, I had an entrepreneurial epiphany where I realized that the biggest and best market in the United States without professional soccer was Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I, I heard the commissioner of MLS talking about all the different markets that they were going to expand into, and, and candidly, he didn't mention Phoenix. And so kind of maybe taking a page out of YPO and and. I, I, was, I basically turned to my wife and I was like, look, I, I think I want to bring professional soccer to Phoenix. And, and long story short, I bought a United Soccer League franchise in that market. I was partnered with another YPO. Uh, we had a team called Arizona United. We, we ultimately, we ended up uh, rebranding it to, re, to Phoenix Rising. I ended up bringing in a host of additional, mostly Phoenix-based partners. And um, the rest is kind of history. I started to see the success with Phoenix Rising and then ultimately start to think about other markets that would benefit from the beautiful game. And and we're, I've got a big project in Rhode Island. It's truly the best market in the country without a team. We've recently launched a new team there, Rhode Island Football Club. 
a couple years ago, I ended up working with a pension fund and led an investment in a club in England called Ipswich Town, a, a very prominent, historically one of the one of the most prominent clubs in the history of English football. It's won the Premier League. It's won the FA Cup. It's won the uh, you know uh, UEFA Championship. You know, it holds three incredible trophies, but. In the Darwinian nature of foreign football, it's been relegated twice. So we, we bought it in League One. We're currently sitting in second place. So we're, God willing, we're poised potentially to get promoted up the championship. So for, for those of your listeners that kind of understand the, the the foreign dynamics of football, that would be important. That would be critical. It would be a massive expansion of the equity valuation. You get a club like that promoted up. So anyway, longer answer than you're probably looking for, but kind of gives you a sense of how I pivoted into this broader space and and I love what I get to do and who I get to do it with. And, and I treat it as a business. I'm not in it for ego. I put all my capital into all of our investments, whether it's benevolent capital on the private equity side or my sort of real estate and sports, which is under an umbrella called Fortuitous Partners. And there's so many places I want to take this conversation with just what you've shared with us right there. I want to talk and dive deep into the professional soccer realm. And of course, we just came out of the World Cup, so soccer's on the forefront of everybody's mind. And, of course, Messi and his incredible uh, run and finally uh, getting the World Cup. But I, I want to go back a little bit further before we, we, we dive into the fun stuff. And I, I want to hear your perspective on your business career. Uh, your brother, Grant, shared a little bit. He, he double-clicked on this issue and shared a little bit of your insight as you and he were working with your father at your uh, pre previous company, Targus, and some of the challenges you had and maybe uh, the distasteful things, maybe, or maybe that might be too strong of a word, but just some of the challenges that you had with some of the private equity firms that you were seeing. And it really was, you saw insight there and you're like, we're going to do something completely different. We're going to do. We're going to create a different type of private equity firm, benevolent capital. And when he was sharing with me what you guys were doing, I was like, I was astonished. I was like, Wow, this is such a different take on creating this company. And then, of course, you you, you highlighted a second ago. You also had insight that Phoenix uh, was a, this great market in the United States that didn't have a professional soccer league. So y you've got multiple things here where you you have an insight on doing things different, and it's opening up new doors of opportunity. I'd, I'd love for you to share with us maybe some of those insights that you had with uh, Benevolent, and then you know lead into uh, some of the things that you saw there with with uh, with Phoenix. Yeah, so uh, you know when I when I had the honor of being the president of Targus, uh, we we were owned by a private equity firm. Um, and then um, I helped, you know, lead a process that ultimately sold the company to another private equity firm. And and what I'll say about uh, the industry, private equity, is uh, of course those that are in the industry are some of the brightest individuals you'll ever have the pleasure of coming across. Mm -hmm. And the private industry has done private equity industry has done so much. Um, you know, to create value. And, uh, but what I found from my experience was the private equity individuals that I worked with, they came really from a Wall Street background. They did, they weren't entrepreneurs. They didn't know what it meant to meet payroll. They didn't know what it meant, you know, to have to manage cash flow cycles, to hire people, to fire people. And, and I remember kind of being shocked when I joined the board of Target. And I was so excited, and I remember going to my first board meeting, and I was kind of shocked with how little attention they really spent to the details. They just basically, um, it, it was kind of like, look, just let us know that everything's good, and, and we'll go on our way, and we'll enjoy dinner with each other. And so, and again, I'm not trying to be critical of them. They, they probably had, you know, too many things on their plate, et cetera. But what, what I what I started to recognize is they were charging the company a lot of money for management fees. They were charging their LPs, their investors. A management fee, and Targus had a situation where we ran into a host of problems. Uh, we had a CFO that stole a lot of money. We made several acquisitions that weren't done properly, not wrong due diligence, wrong acquisition prices. We got loaded up with debt, and I found myself in a position where I really was kind of left holding the bag. I had to let a lot of people go that their only sin was working for a company that had made these mistakes. 
And what I really would, for me, just getting back to your question on grants and my arc with private equity, is I wanted to approach the industry differently. What I realized was the partners in, that I was dealing with at, while I was at Targus, they honestly had no skin in the game. If Targus went under, they weren't going to miss a meal. They weren't going to miss a mortgage payment. They, they collectively had very, very little capital in their fund. And then every quarter between the management fees that we were paying them, plus the LP fees that they were getting paid, they were all making an incredible amount of money. And that's before the promote that they got on all their portfolios. So I'm sitting here saying, look, this, these incentives are so misaligned. It's, out, it's outrageous. And how, how are more people not jumping up and down about the way that this construct? And the reality is, it's because people have done well in the asset class, so they can defend those fees, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But so long way of my saying that when Grant and I decided to partner up and launch a private equity firm, you know, Benevolent Capital, we truly live up to our name. We do not charge management fees. Um, the amount of money every single year that Grant and I pass on relative to not taking management fees is staggering. Um, but we do it with absolute pride. We do it with complete joy. And then in addition, we, we provide, as I'm sure Grant mentioned you, we provide, provide on our private equity side, we provide 100% preferred return to our investors. And then once we've given them that preferred, we will take a 30% promote. So we take a healthy promote. We, we don't, and we don't make any uh, apologies for it because the reality is unless you've gotten the proverbial home run, our promote doesn't kick in. Right. And by the way, we don't get a catch up at that point. You know, that's also kind of important to explain. So I love our approach to it. I'm very proud of our approach to it. And the reality is we do it on a deal by deal basis. We don't have a blind fund. So when Grant and I see something that we like, we always put our own money into it. Um, and then above and beyond that, we go out and syndicate to friends and family. And if if it's not a good deal, the market will tell us. But by and large, you know, we've got a great portfolio now. I'm very proud of Aura, our wearable athletic, the non-alcoholic beer. Like, you know, we continue to find great opportunities and we usually are pretty good at raising, you know, probably something in the sweet spot of like two to ten million dollars, depending on the deal. Um, and have built up a nice portfolio. So mm -hmm. Anyway, that, that's how we got here. I like our model. I'm not saying that the rest of the private equity industry has, has it, but it's worked well for us. And, and again, um, it keeps us very, very disciplined because I do think, look, if, if I could raise a big pool of capital and put it wherever I wanted to, like the reality is I'm not quite sure that, that like the lack of discipline associated with that, I'm concerned about the errors that, that you potentially make because it's a very different economic model. You have to put money to work right. under that model. Well, and I, I heard about this uh, from Grant, the way he was outlining it, and you've uh, echoed it here. It's like, wow, what an incredible way to uh, really craft yourself to be unique and distinctive. I haven't heard of anybody else doing what you guys are doing. Uh, and it, it was just, it was really cool to, to see how you guys had aligned incentives with everybody. Um, and it just, you know, I'm, I'm super excited to see how you guys grow. Uh, and I'm looking forward to participating as well on some of the deals that you have coming down the pike. So um, one of the things I, I want to hit on real quick, it feels like the environment around us is rapidly changing. And it's easy to kind of uh, make money in a market when everything is going up and to the right. And I'm hearing a lot of business leaders talking about the importance of uh, being a wartime CEO or a wartime operator, when you were in that environment where you're walking in as the president of Targus and you've got all these challenges, you're, you're in the midst, you're in the foxhole with your troops. It's a wartime environment. It's not easy. What did you learn uh, being a leader in that environment? Because it's very different when, when, if you just, you know, uh, you know, in a boom economy and you've raised a ton of capital and everything's rosy and you, you see a bunch of, uh, there's been, you know, uh, tech founders out in Silicon Valley, where they've raised massive amounts of capital. It's kind of easy to build a business and grow a business in an environment where you can just burn investor capital to gain market share. And here you are, young guy, having to be a wartime president in a very different environment. What did you learn? Leadership, operations? Because, I mean, that's going to be very much in vogue right now. Companies, especially private equity venture capitalists, are looking for wartime presidents, CEOs, leaders to be able to handle those types of challenges. Yeah. Uh, you know, from my perspective, you got to be able to make tough decisions and you got to try to make them quick and you got to continue to, you know, be prepared to, to make, you know, even more tough decisions. 
And and if you you know a certain response you're expecting doesn't start to materialize, you know you got to immediately assess why that is. And um, I, you know the way I described the adversity that I dealt with at Targus was that from my experience overseas in London, the business grew rapidly. And I kind of thought, you know, if you'd asked me at the time, I was a young young guy. I was in my early 30s. If you'd asked me, you know, I would have kind of rated myself as a good CEO. You know, like I kind of thought I had my act together, if you will. It was really only once I dealt with the adversity of having to lay employees off, being, you know, breaching covenants on our debt, you know, really having, you know, sort of month to month, you know, diving catches in terms of how to manage the cash flow, like pushing out your payables, calling in your receivables, all that other stuff. Like that's from my perspective, that actually made me what I call a, a good CEO or certainly someone, you know, that can handle the wartime pressure, if you will. What, what I find interesting about where I am right now is I, I'm now a full entrepreneur. I, I And maybe some of that adversity is served me well. I, I really love being an entrepreneur. Like I've had, I've had a complete pivot from when we sold targets. I used to kind of wait for the phone to ring and I'd get headhunted to run companies. So mm -hmm. for a while I was kind of taking a W2 and I was getting, you know, stock incentives on things. I got recruited to run a publicly traded company. And what I found about just between you and me is that it was absolutely soulless work. I didn't care about it at all. I mean, I just literally, because I was married with kids, I had to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Where, where I look at my career right now, I love what I get to do. I love waking up in the morning. I don't view it as work. I love collaborating with my twin brother. I love working with incredible investors, with great companies. And then, you know, obviously on the soccer side and everything I get to do in that, it's a lot of fun. Like, I, I love watching my teams on the weekends play. I love, you know, bringing friends and family to the different, you know, teams that I, I get to be associated with. So that's that's a lot of fun. I always say to people when they when they look at any opportunity to work with me in sports, we all have a lot of investments. So I can guarantee no investment you'll enjoy more than being involved with this. But that that being said, I, I I care about winning. It's important to have a winning product, literally on and off the pitch. But I want a return on the investment. Like I don't do any of it because of ego. Like I I just said, like I I, I really am wanting it for business, and I'm putting all my capital in it in it because of the return that I expect to generate from it. And that generally I am getting from it. So. Anyway, so that that's again. I apologize. Seemingly a much longer answer than you potentially were looking for. I want you to take as much time. I want you to go down as many rabbit trails as you want. That's that's where the interesting content comes out. No, I appreciate it. But again, I, I so what I would say is, um, in terms of being an entrepreneur now, I think all entrepreneurs, in order to, you, I think the universe tests you. Like I had some really early challenges that you know, waking up in the middle of the night with the proverbial primal screams in terms of how levered I was, how like how much I, my back was against the wall. Literally in my early endeavors in professional soccer in Arizona, I I, I had I would I had two additional mortgages on my house to help finance the team and get it through a very dark period of time. I was completely maxed out on my credit cards. I couldn't have gone all in, but I remained positive. I remained optimistic and I knew I had an asset and I knew I had a vision of what this could be and I stuck with it. But there were a couple moments there I was very, very close to candidly having to declare bankruptcy, kind of, you know, <laughs> hit the massive reset business but button and have to go. And that I guarantee you, I would have pivoted back to the arms of a steady paycheck. And you and I, I wouldn't be on the show right now. That's for sure. You wouldn't want, you wouldn't really be interested in talking to me because I basically would be taking whoever, I'd be a gun for hire, whoever would pay me money to, you know, keep the lights on, you know, for my wife and my kids. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, either way, that story is, is interesting, but I tell you what, it, just hearing uh, the origin story of, you know, even pivoting out of where you were and into the professional realm of sports yeah, I, I want to get into the, the the uniqueness of sports and the differences, the similarities, and you know what you've learned in this sector because there, there there certainly are um, things that are similar in business, but I'm sure that this business is very different. But since you opened up and shared a couple of these insights, 
what was it that enabled you in those dark moments when you're waking up maybe in the middle of the night and you're going, you're maybe having like a panic attack and you're, you're levered up your multiple mortgages on your house back against the wall. Was, did you find yourself in a situation where like the only way out is through and you just kind of muscled your way through or were, was your conviction in your business plan with your business partners, with the business is like, I know this is going to work. I just need enough time. It was, is it a little bit of both or was there one more than the other? I mean, how did you navigate that? I think the way you said it was I, I basically realized I just had to push through. I had to push through it. Like the reality is um, and, and unless you're truly insane, you don't put two more mortgages and lever up all your credit card if you don't have faith that mm -hmm. you, that you have something there and that so i had faith that if you will professional soccer in phoenix was the right thesis mm -hmm. that the market was had the right de demographics and size so that it was worthy of putting that kind of investment what i really needed to do was figure out where i could build a stadium in the right location um, and, and it really required me getting the right partner. So I was basically, you know, parachuting into Phoenix multiple times a week, meeting with deep pocketed Venetians and explaining to them, look, I, I have something pretty interesting here. This is an asset. What we need is the right ownership group. We need to play in the right location in the right stadium. And, and I got actually several of them are YPOs, but I, I got a fair number of, of YPOs uh, or Venetians to kind of share that vision and take the leap with me and come on board and um and that that turned everything around that um and one of the one of my partners convinced for those of your listeners that are that are uh, soccer fans they'll know this name didier drogba who played for chelsea is considered the best player to play for chelsea which is quite a statement ivory coast you know unbelievable one of the greatest ambassadors and players this sport he finished up his career with us in phoenix rising wow. and he joined our ownership group and and, and, you know, I focus on now, my, my focus is on the United Soccer League, which in the soccer pyramid in the United States is right below Major League Soccer. Um, my franchise in Rhode Island, um, it's the best market demographically without a team. So now I'm bringing a USL franchise there. I'm building a stadium and I'm developing all the real estate around it. And I'm doing it in a very um, tax efficient construct. I'm leveraging the, the Opportunity Zone program for the team. So that's an interesting approach with it. But I'm transforming a market, which previously was a brownfield site. Um, it's prime, prime real estate that's laid fallow for a host of reasons. And we're completely transforming an area that really needs it, that that they need the transformation for the real estate and they need the jobs that we're going to develop. We're, we're in a market called Pawtucket, which is right outside of Providence, which suffered the loss of the prior baseball team that was there, a AAA team that picked up and left. So. Anyway, there are a whole host of reasons to be proud of what we're doing in that market. And, you know, it's nice at the end of the day, capital, you could a lot of places to put capital. It's always nice to put capital somewhere where you're going to get a good return on investment. But most importantly, it will make a big, big difference in that area. And that's certainly what, what we're doing there. Well, I had the opportunity not long ago to uh, participate on a number of investor calls with you as um, you were sharing uh, your presentation and uh, for qualified investors. And there, there'll be an opportunity here. We'll maybe put it in the show notes and uh, folks who want to get in touch with you who are qualified investors want to be a, a part of professional major league soccer here within the United States um, can learn more. Uh, before we dive into all the exciting reasons that a person uh, would love to be uh, in professional sports here within the United States, especially soccer, the, the, the world's largest sport, fastest growing sport, as you made this pivot out of other businesses into professional sports, what were the things that you found were similar in what you've learned and what you've done in previous businesses? And what are some of the th new challenges or new things that you learned about being in uh, the realm of professional soccer? Yeah. So my, my thesis with soccer was that the United States was going to catch up in terms of the passion for the sport, in terms of viewership, and that's happening. Uh, this latest World Cup has set, you know, um, viewership records. In three and a half years, men's World Cup's coming back to the U.S. When that happens, um, soccer will firmly pos position itself as the number three major sport in this country. So it'll be NFL, NBA, and then and then professional soccer. And the, world, the next World Cup's going to be in the U.S.? In 2026, 
It's coming to the U.S. It'll actually be U.S., Canada, and Mexico. The three countries are going to host the World Cup. Um, it'll be 14 markets in between the three countries, 11 of which are here in the States. And uh, it, they're actually increasing the field from 32 to, is it 46 or 48 teams? They're, they're increasing the amount of countries that qualify for the World Cup finals. Um, and then, you know, the economically, it's going to be such a boon to to all these markets. And, you know, I'm excited. Rhode Island is, you know, the stadium that we're building is not, we're not hosting any World Cup games at our stadiums, but I will be hosting a lot of friendlies between foreign clubs that want to come and start to get some time in the United States that want to start to build up bigger fan bases. My training facility, for sure, I'll have some foreign club that, you know, candidly will likely pay a fair bit of money to be able to access and play on my fields in that market because we're really well located. You know, Rhode Island's right between, you know, Boston and New York and not too far away from Toronto, all of which are kind of hosting World Cup games. So what were what are some of the biggest differences pivoting into this business space? You're like, oh, wow, I, I didn't realize the learning curve on this. This is a little different. Yeah, I mean, your your asset is your players. Your asset are your fans, your supporters. You know, if you kind of look at the goodwill on the balance sheet, um, you know, you, you've got to build a product. And, you know, it's a sport that's been around for so long. It's, you know, my team in England, Ipswich, is a 150-plus-year-old franchise. You know, so on one side, I have a club that's been around for, for centuries. And then I have my Phoenix club. You know, we la- we launched at least Phoenix Rising, this iteration of it. We launched that in 2016. So that's, you know, six years in. And I've just a month ago launched my Rhode Island franchise. So it's interesting to, to have, like, the, the parallel between, in some, some respects, about as established a club as you could possibly have, where, you know, Ipswich has got a global fan base, you know, because of its history, et cetera. You know, this uh, on the on Boxing Day, the 26th, December 26th, we'll have a home game. I think we'll be close to sell out, you know, the stadium's 30,000 seats. You know, that's a big, big venue, especially in League One where we focus on. Mm-hmm. But so the, the difference is obviously you're dealing with professional athletes. You know, that that's 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 the investment that you're making. Right. Um you know, they it's it's an, it's a big investment. You need to create an environment where they want to come play for you. You, you got to try to keep them as healthy as possible. And at the end of the day, certainly under under any of the teams I've been involved with, it's really important from my perspective that you win. And and I, I don't try to confuse myself in terms of where my skill sets at. I'm I'm not a head coach. I you know I'm not big, making player decisions. My my role is to choose the coach. At the end of the day. And if the coach is not cutting it, then my my role is to make a change there. But otherwise, you got to bring in really, really capable people that have the latitude to execute and win on the field. And that, and more often than not, I've been very fortunate with my teams that they've done exactly that. Uh, Phoenix Rising has won a bunch of trophies. Uh, Ipswich, since we bought it, it was really struggling. And now, God willing, we're kind of sitting at the top of the table. We're in second place, you know, midway through the season, kind of, you know, in in, in good position to potentially in the second half of the season to kind of push through and ideally get promoted automatically if we could finish in first or second place. But, but at the end of the day, the similarities are, you know, you're, you, you're in a customer service business. You want to keep people happy. You want to invest in a good product. You want to, you know, make sure you have really good employees that represent the club. And, and at the end of the day, you know, you, you do have a fan base that is really demanding. And in some respects, you're only as good as your last game. Oh wow! You know it's it's a tough business to be in from that perspective. You get you get rated almost every weekend in terms of how you're doing, and you know they'll they'll forgive you if the beer is not as cold as it should be or the popcorn doesn't taste as good. If you get a W, you can get really punished if you start to go, you know, on the wrong direction on on the pitch. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a lot of Americans that have not really been exposed to uh, professional football. I'll call it soccer, the American term. And all of a sudden became fans and started to understand the game differently because of the Apple hit Ted Lasso. How has that impacted your business? And is it indicative? Is that a pretty good uh, indication or is it a little bit of insight into professional soccer? I, I hear people talking about it. They absolutely love it. I'm a big Jamie fan. Uh, Ted Lasso did more to educate Americans on promotion and relegation than probably anything in the history of the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, as a good example, my beloved wife 
as a result of us watching that show, she now understands promotion and relegation. She finally understands your business. You're like, woohoo. She might, she might not understand. She might not be able to spot offsides yet when we watch a game, but she's, she's got promotion and relegation. And so I, there's the Ted Lasso effect is real. The Wrexham effect is real. The Ryan Reynolds, you know, Rob McElhenney, their purchase there. Soccer is really having a moment, and it's going to continue to have a moment. And I think for a host of reasons, it's a you know the running clock in, in increasingly a world where we all got distractions. This ADD world that we live in. When you watch a soccer game, if it's a good game, you're not looking away. If you do, you're going to miss something. Yeah. You know they're not breaking for commercials. You know the reality is that to, to this day, I used to play a host of sports growing up. I find it very difficult to watch American football or baseball games. I, the constant stop in action, the commercials, et cetera, they just, I, I just can't sit through it as, as much. And I mean, I, I will, you know, watch the big games. Of course, I'm a sports fan at heart, but I think one of the reasons why soccer is converting so many people. And I tell you the game on Sunday, this finals between Argentina and France, I had so many people reach out to me from all over the world. Friends of mine who I know just traditionally aren't soccer fans that were basically like, I can't believe what I just witnessed. That was the most amazing sporting event I've ever watched. I'm hooked. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think the game, I started saying to people, I think that game might have done more for the sport of soccer, interestingly enough, than any game in the history of the sport. Because I think that was so well viewed, and particularly from people who just don't follow the sport, you know, certainly like I do. I heard the same thing. Many of my friends who are not rabid, you know, soccer fans said, that has to be the best, you know, football soccer match I've ever seen. Unbelievable. What did we just witness? This was instant classic. And it was interesting how you articulated the difference between a great soccer match and other uh, American sports like football or baseball, basketball. Because uh, a lot of times if I'm watching those, I will watch it with my phone in my hand and I'm, you know, I'll do a text here or I'll check something out. And I'm, I can, it's back and forth and you, you, the, the, the action is broken up. But as I was watching World Cup, you can't, I mean, you're literally immersed in it and it allows you to just get away from everything else that's going on in the world, away from the, your life. You're a hundred percent all in, in just a, a, a moment of in, pure enjoyment without all the other distractions. I just, it, it, you're absolutely spot on. And, and by and large, the games are, you could set a train schedule to the games, you know, where a regular season game, you're not going to go into penalty kicks. You're not going into, you know, the overtime that we saw on Sunday. Um, you get a couple minutes of injury time at the at the end of the first half and at the end of the game. But otherwise, you, you, can, you know, if you show up, you're going to get out of there two hours later. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the reality is with the baseball game, with the football game, <laughs> you have no idea mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're getting out of there at all. And I, so, I, look, the reality is that we're not, from my perspective, it's not about competing against baseball. So, like, I, I love sport writ large. I'm focused right now on soccer, but it's really important to kind of highlight what, what I've realized. I'm building what initially would be a 10,500-seat stadium in Rhode Island in a great location. And the amount of demand that I have from other sports that are looking for a venue of the size that we're building and the location that we're building, I've started to have uh, along the way a lot of epiphanies about my business plan. But one thing that's very, very clear to me is there is a complete lack of inventory in this country of 10 to 15,000 multi-purpose stadiums. And that's a massive opportunity because lacrosse, rugby, obviously soccer, both men's and women's, and then American football are seeking out, not everyone is the NFL, not everyone is Beyonce, and for everyone else, they need a smaller, well-placed venue with you know great amenities and all that other stuff. So I get excited because the league, again, that I focus on, United Soccer League, is building across the country a host of very similar stadiums like the one that I'm gonna have in Rhode Island, and it's mm-hmm. gonna transform sports in smaller markets where again, you're gonna have world-class rugby and lacrosse, you know, premier lacrosse leagues doing phenomenally well. Yeah. Rugby is a very, very popular sport. So anyway, it just makes me bullish in terms of what I'll call the central thesis of what I'm doing is just sports anchored real estate in the United States. That's a perfect segue into uh, my next question in terms of just the opportunities and what do you see? I mean, do you, you're, I had the opportunity to listen to your entire pitch and and see uh, various plans and you know how you are leveraging this brown zone opportunity and there's all sorts of tax credits and benefits and so forth for your investors. But what do you see as the uh, the opportunities? You've already touched on a lot of it, but are, are there other insights that you would like to add? Other things that you want to do 
uh, with your investment firm and, and, and moving, or you want to duplicate what you're doing in Rhode Island around the country, but what makes professional soccer and what you're doing so exciting? It's obvious you can see that you're, how passionate you are about it. Yeah, I, I, I certainly have every interest and intention, and I've got a pretty good pipeline of additional markets kind of falling on the heels of Rhode Island. I mean, one of the benefits or what I've been doing in Rhode Island is I've really pu- I've structured a public-private partnership with the state and with the city, with the city of Pawtucket. Um, you know, because the reality is these assets do require that exactly that a public-private partnership. Um, it is important in my opinion, and this is I didn't come up with this business plan. It was uh, you know in my market where I live, Los Angeles, LA Live, the downtown complex that Phil Andrews AEG built up around the Lakers, around you know um, uh, the LA Kings. The hockey franchise it transformed this market um you know using those sports franchises to develop a bunch of real estate downtown la has completely transformed and now you know and, and probably maybe not appropriate to give them a credit because i'm sure someone before them really focused on sort of sports anchored real estate but what i like about what i get to do is i don't need to do it within an nfl team i don't need to do it with an nba team nhl i get to do it with the united soccer league and i go get to go into markets that are smaller that have a great deal of interest, if you will, mm-hmm. in sports and entertainment. Oh, yeah. And so, um, and, and what I what I love is that I can lead with soccer, and then I can start to introduce the host of additional sports. And as I've stated, I, I have every interest and intention um, to add a women's team. Women's soccer is is doing very very well. Obviously, the numbers are are staggering. And so, I think these assets and then you know one of the things you immediately start to do is you connect with all the youth side with these sports and you find a pathway for kids to get engaged to get off the couch to have something positive to do after school you know which so for so many of us you know i think we all kind of recognize the benefit that sports plays in terms of developing character etc so it's great to be involved with all that stuff as well but when, when you come to a municipality, you come to an area and you can bring a lot of this stuff to bear. None of it's easy, but if you can, it's really worth it. And you will get politicians to lean in, you get business leaders to lean in, and you usually get access to you know land maybe the average developer wouldn't get and, mm-hmm. and put together some type of mix. But you gotta have a perfect mix because none of it's easy. Like trying to get a finance a stadium is difficult, trying to develop. So it really does require kind of a host of different programs. And that's why I like the Opportunity Zone program. I think it's a brilliant construct in terms of incenting private capital to go into areas that it normally wouldn't go into. Um, so I applaud, you know, and it was one of the few, it might've been, I think, in, in, if memory serves me correctly, I think it was the only bipartisan part of that tax bill, you know, oh. that, you know, truly had support on both sides of the aisle. And I, and I applaud, if you will, the architects of the program, because I genuinely believe they came up with a great incentive for people who have the high class situation and capital gains of finding ways to recycle it to its most positive effect. Mm-hmm. And certainly where I'm doing that is a perfect example. It's a poster child of what the program is about, because in the absence of it, I'm not quite sure I would go into the communities that I'm going into. Mm-hmm. That's a, what an incredible benefit. I, I was taking a lot of notes as I was listening to your presentation uh, previously on it. It's like, wow, this is fascinating. What are some of the, uh, the benefits that people have at being a owner of a professional sports team. And I'm, I'm watching uh, friends of ours that uh, are enjoying some of the, th- those benefits as they sit in the owner's box over there with you and Ipswich. And, you know, you, you've talked about how cool it is to, you know, go in and you're like, you're, you're the owner of a club and it, 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 there's some, there's some really cool things that are happening there as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. There's, I mean, you're certainly joining a club, um, you know, which which gets you access. I mean, sitting you know in a director's box at a at a Portman Road, which is a stadium for Ipswich, and getting dressed up and having a nice meal and sort of the pomp and circumstance around it, and and just the tradition is so much fun. And I love to host friends and family with me at, at Ipswich matches. I wish I, I wish I lived closer to kind of do that more frequently, but. You know, I, if I think about in Phoenix, I love hosting people to the stadium that we have there. Um, and, and then Rhode Island is going to be the same thing. It's I, I've seen it firsthand, uh, you know, with a lot of my investors in Phoenix, in Phoenix Rising, 
you know, they're unbelievably successful. They have a lot of investments, but almost without exception, the investment they like the most that I guarantee you that their family is getting the most utility of they, that they get with their friends is owning a stake in a team that they get to go and cheer on a fairly consistent basis. Um, you know, but that being said, it, it is an investment. And, and then also, especially because we do have pretty large ownership groups, um, while they get access to, you know, a good suite, et cetera, the reality is um, in order to really make it pencil, you got to make sure they're paying for it. You yeah, know, you can, for sure. Maybe you need to give them a couple free seats, et cetera. But one thing very early on, we recognized that we just had to have a situation where we had rules where it was like, look, not, not only are you paying for it, but we actually expect you because part of it is we're looking for you to support season tickets. And we're also looking for you with your relationships to help bring sponsors to the table and et cetera. But what, one of the things I, I've also found is just how much they enjoy seeing the difference in these young professionals, like signing great young players, seeing them develop under a watch, you know, certainly in our league, the opportunity to, to look at selling those players on to bigger teams, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that you had an impact in terms of that. And then the economics of it, it's also very interesting in terms of it's one, again, if I go down why I'm so bullish on soccer in America, why I'm so bullish on USL is because we will increasingly find young talent, we'll own the rights to that talent, we will invest in it, we will make them better. And then in an ideal scenario, we will sell them on to bigger and better clubs. And it's a win for them, it's a win for us, you know, it's it's a win for everybody. But I love the economic model and I'm really excited about seeing what I can do in the sport in terms of creating substantial amount of recurring revenue from a pipeline of developing great players. It sounds like you have a triple bottom line there. It's a great business opportunity investment. It's having a huge impact in local communities, and it's having an impact in people's lives, not just the players, but also uh, the members of the community who are enjoying it, uh, the young people who are inspired and coming out to the pitch, and they're starting to, to play soccer and get outside the house and outside of video games and you know living a healthy lifestyle. So it's an all-around, uh, just a, a great triple bottom line. It, it strikes me that as we have weathered some kind of interesting economic uh, storms here from COVID and into a recession, there's uh, industries that you see facing really strong headwinds, but it has felt like, now not, and I'm not an expert here, so I'm, gonna, I'm asking your expert advice, it, from in my community here in the Southeast, and just looking around, it's like, Anything re- uh, revolving around youth sports and professional sports, it feels like that's an area that has not experienced a lot of headwind. It's been, you know, the opposite. It's like people like I'll cut back in other areas of my life, but I'm not going to cut back when it comes to uh, my my children in sports or our entertainment with sports. So it it would would seem that this is a phenomenal economic opportunity, even though we might be facing some uh, economic challenges here in the future. Is that correct? I think, yes, I think so. I mean, again, I think when someone looks at their discretionary spending, they're going to do whatever they can to try to keep their connection with watching and supporting their local sports team by, by and large. Um, and again, I, what I like about the product that we we produce is it's affordable. My average ticket's going to be more affordable than a lot of other leagues, et cetera. And we really have options all the way from, you know, someone who's a student um, to a family of four, you know, and then all the way up to some, you know, the corporation that's obviously looking for a different experience is going to be entertaining, et cetera. So we, we have the full sort of a la carte of, of choices, but uh, sports, live sports, entertainment, you know, we recognize coming out of this, you know, pandemic is just how much we all missed it. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a yearning and how quickly the numbers started to actually hit new highs on a lot of live events post pandemic. And so, you know, from my perspective, um, we, we've dealt with the worst that we could possibly deal with in this industry. There's no, there's no scenario if you're in live events, there is no scenario worse than what we experienced, the pandemic, and we got through it. And God willing, we never, ever go back to it again. Um, but in, increasingly, people want they, they want and need that entertainment, that connection. And um, and and I get it. I mean, I, I and again, I think that's partly where, in some respects, if you think about this World Cup, why it seemingly seemed to resonate with so many people, just there's so many narratives from that tournament. And I do think it brought the world a little bit closer together as it seems to do. Yeah. It really is the world sport. There's not, you know, like cricket's having a moment. They've got an unbelievable contract. You know, we've got some YPO friends that are very involved with cricket. I love them all. But the reality is like, 
as well as it's doing, like when there's a quick world champion, it just doesn't resonate the same. It just doesn't have the same fun. American football doesn't have the same fun. Like there's nothing truly when you get to the World Cup finals, the entire world has been a part of that. Nothing else compares. That was amazing. What an amazing experience. But what type of insight do you have right now as we look into 23 economically? Yeah, yeah it's, um, you know, I'm not. I, I just keep, no matter what the environment is, whether it's raining or, or it, it's sunny, you know, just kind of keep putting my right foot after my left foot. And it's just stuff that you have to deal with. Interest rates going up, you figure out how to deal with it. Prices going up. You know, I did have a situation with the stadium in Rhode Island where almost overnight, because of the supply chain issue, inflation, labor, interest rates, I mean, it was a perfect storm of cost increases. And it required me to really go back and work with the state to help get more public support, which was no easy task. And to the governor and governor's credit in particular, we ended up getting it, um, That's right. but so so everyone's just got to figure out what their plan B is to try to make things happen. You know, I don't. For a lot of us, you know, there is no retreat. You just got to keep marching on. So I, I'm an optimist on on all this stuff. I I mean, from my perspective, the the in an environment that we're in now with inflation, I guess you know, I guess they. They have to do what they have to do in terms of interest rates. Certainly from my perspective, every single time I seem to kind of read the headlines, it seems like interest rates are growing up another 50 basis points. But so I, I, there's a part of me that certainly hopes that that, that, <laughs> that comes to an end soon. And, you know, we probably need a little bit where a situation where, you know, again, the economy cools off mm-hmm. so we can start to, to you know, because I do think it's critical for my, so much of what we all do requires access to capital. And, and so I do hope that, you know, we start to see that ease off and then, you know, our sense we start to to turn around and the inflation starts heading our way. But no matter what the environment that's going to be in, you know, uh, those of us that are blessed to be able to do what we do from an entrepreneurial perspective, you just got to continue to figure out how to navigate it one way or the other and what the new normal is. For sure. So for young people who might be listening to this and are sitting here listening to a a CEO who's had a distinguished career doing some incredible things right now, has a phenomenal educational background. Uh, you, you've seen a lot. You've experienced a lot. What advice would you give young people? Uh, what are things that you have learned in your career uh, or experiences that you've had in your career that have really helped you? And you're like, man, you know, like, imagine you're giving this advice to your kids or to Grant's kids. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us in our careers, the arc that you got to go through is you got to kind of be in a lot of environments where it's tough and it's not, you know, it's not where your future lies, but you got to, you got to go through it. It's, you know, I, I remember a lot of jobs that I had, which I just wasn't crazy about them and I had to work very, very hard and I wasn't compensated that well. But I, I'm glad I got through it and the people I learned from and, you know, the lessons that it imparted on me, it certainly makes me very, very grateful for where I am, you know, today. And sometimes I think about, uh, you know, some of the, I had some bosses that I didn't respect too much. That I didn't feel, but, you know, in many respects, I, I took away lessons from them. I maybe decided to manage differently because of the way that experience resonated. So I tell people, you know, you got to go out there and you got to get experience and, you know, but you got to work hard. you got to be positive. You got to show up. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think young people, um, if they are, if they have those attributes and they're willing to push it, they're going to be worth their weight in gold. Cause I, I do think that at the end of the day, talent is the most important thing. And if you, if you work hard, you have a positive attitude, people like to be around you. I think your future is really, really bright. Um, and, and, you know, effectively limitless. Like I, I will, I, and I feel very fortunate because in sports, you actually do get, uh, understandably, you get a lot of people who are very interested in getting into sports. It's not the easiest to place to break into, but I, I get people all the time, increasingly, you know, young kids that are on the precipice of graduating from college that are reaching out, coveting an opportunity to get into sports. So I'm impressed by that, but I can open up the doors for a lot of people in a lot of areas, you know, the rest is up to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I think it's also important to, Think about your network. You know, I think technology exists now where where you can build a network at a young young age. I'm always impressed with young people who kind of reach out to me, want to be in touch, you know, might want a little, you know, a minute to kind of understand my arc or get some advice. I'm always happy to try to make time for people to that regard. And so, um, you know, to that end, any of the young people listening, if they want, if, if you know, they want a career in this space, if I, they're free to reach out to me and I'm always happy to. If I've got an introduction I can make to them, I'm always happy to do it. And 
pay it back the way other people did it for me as we, we you know, I was certainly going through my career. Oh, this is great advice. What are some of the top skills that you would recommend people um, polish up on or have, or what are there top skills that you look for and, uh, and others you've, you've mentioned uh, uh, some few uh, characteristics and character traits, but are there specific skills? So my, my big three are you got to be able to read, you got to be able to write, you got to be able to speak in public. If you have those, everything else can be taught to you. Um, but it, it's, it's not easy if you, if you end up joining an organization and, you know, if candidly, I think if you, you don't have an ability to write well, I think that affects your communication mm -hmm. in terms of trying to, trying to be effective in terms of communicating with outside stakeholders, et cetera, you wouldn't represent th that asset well. So I think that's kind of a, a baseline requisite. I think in, in, in general, I think skill set of being able to get up and speak in public to be able to present yourself is is really kind of worth its weight in gold. Um, and then, you know, obviously hard work is a requisite with this stuff as well. Um, but, you know, like I said, I think you can teach everything, but, you know, you can't, if, in, if you don't have kind of those as a baseline, mm -hmm. it'd be very, very difficult. And that, but, and then increasingly, I, I do think uh, in the world that we live in have, have multiple skill sets in terms of, Language, empathy is important. Uh, emotional intelligence is important, mm. and, and you don't you don't have to be you don't have to be particularly bright. You have to be the most successful people in the world. Actually, you know, most of the time aren't that aren't the brightest. They're the ones that are the hardest working, and you know, have the emotional intelligence and toolkits to kind of weather through adversity. You know, the, the grit, if you will. People who are self aware to ask questions, get better, understand their shortcomings, and you know, fix it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, from my perspective, as I try to say, it's just um, really, and also just kind of a humility associated with it. And, and, you know, I feel very blessed. And as I always kind of talk about it, just, I have faith that, um, you know, I've been kind of heading in the right direction and feel very, very pleased about where I am now and, and really don't take one moment for granted. Because again, as I talked about earlier on, a, a little bit different here, a little bit different there. I could be doing something wholly different right now. And, I, and I, what I really love is I know that I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. And that that's a great feeling to be in. And I wish that for everyone, if you will. And you didn't always have that in your career, but you've, you found it here uh, mid-career, um, trial and error and um, just discovering where you feel like you fit in and where you're having fun and moving the needle and doing good. Is, is that a true statement or how do you feel like you discovered that? No, completely. Again, for me, it was the ultimately taking the leap, what I call it, just be full to go full-time entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. there, there was early on with, with uh, the Phoenix, I, I was running a company and trying to run that. And then, and that's just not, you can't do it. You can't have your heart in two different places. You can't have your mind in two places. And, and the reality is both were suffering from it. Such a and great so, insight. Yeah. Well, ultimately taking the leap and saying, look, I got to go all in on this. Mm. And again, the challenge for me is going all in on it was, was I'd already gone in all, all in on the financial side. Um, but I, I just stopped, I stopped entertaining when the phone would ring and someone was willing to pay me, you know, what I call that W2 money, mm -hmm. I stopped, I, I literally turned those down. I, and I, and I cut, I, I walked away from the paycheck that I was receiving. Um, but then by giving the full time and attention, and again, I think at some point the unit, that's where I kind of describe it is where the universe starts to say, okay, guess what? This is all right. He's, he's taking that leap. There's no, yeah. he's, he's, he's burned, he's burned the ships. There's no retreat. Okay. Let's, Let's, let's start to give him a little bit of support here. The right investor comes in, the right meeting happens, mm -hmm. you know, the authenticity comes through that much more. People kind of realize, you know what, this guy really is all in on this thing. So I, I think I'd like to be a part of it. So that's, that started to pay off. Real quick, what, what were some of the differences uh, of being an entrepreneur, hundred percent all in when you, when you walked away from that kind of steady state, nine to five W2 income. And you're like, all right, I'm going all in, burn the boats. Uh, being an entrepreneur is quite a bit different. A full-time entrepreneur, an all in entrepreneur. It's quite a bit different than a nine to five employee. Could you sum up a couple of the, the big differences that you felt? I mean, obviously a positive is you've got a lot of freedom, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know what I started to recognize is that either historically in my career, I was, I was not great at managing up. Like I, I, if I disagreed with the board of directors, you know, usually I'd be, I'd be out of a job, you know? So I kind of recognize, 
you know, and they look, they, they were the ones I worked for them at the end of the day. So um, I started to recognize, you know, what my personality is more geared towards working for myself. Um, you know, what I, what I do really enjoy doing is reading biographies of other entrepreneurs. And, you know, just to rattle off a couple, you know, Phil Knight's got a, a, his book, Shoe Dog. Um, you know, there's good good stories on Elon Musk, et cetera. You know, to read the adversity that these entrepreneurs, like everyone looks at them and thinks like, oh yeah, you know, billionaire, like it just, we forget what they went through in their early stages and the leaps that they went, you know, the diving catches, they call it. Um, and again, you can see that time, I mean, Richard Branson, you can go through so many entrepreneurs. There's almost no narrative of an entrepreneur that's made it where there won't be some part of their story where it's like, man, they were their back was against the wall. And, uh, you know, that crucible that they have to go through to really kind of test whether or not this is right for them. So, I, I you know, I guess from my perspective, I look back and I've, I've got that narrative. I've been through that. And and as I said, like the amount of times with we're just with Rhode Island where we've hit massive, massive speed bumps, and you kind of just recognize again, if you're a full-time entrepreneur, you you figure out how to go over, around, through whatever it takes, and you just kind of sit there and say, hey, that obstacle, we'll, we'll figure that obstacle. Now, what's the next one? We'll figure that one. What's the next one? So, anyway, it's just having that that fortitude and just recognizing that. You know, again, you're just no matter what it takes, you will get it done. You keep moving forward, and um, and that's again where uh, none of it, as I say, is for the faint of heart. But man, do I enjoy what I get to do! And what what a pleasure, Bob, to talk to you. I always, I really cherish this. And you know, you and I have known each other for a long time in this beautiful organization of YPO that we're a part of. So. Thank you. And I'm so thrilled as well. You've got a relationship with my brother now. You know, it's been yeah. such a great part to have him join YPO and get involved with Harvard, et cetera. So, so thank you for this. No, it's it's been an honor. I absolutely have learned so much from you over the years. And you were graduating from the program about just as I was joined. And so we knew each other for a few years there and been able to continue our friendship. But I've always had great respect and admiration for you and uh, the kind of man you are, what you stand for, what you do in life. And uh, just getting to see what you're doing with Benevolent and then all of your uh, other endeavors, it's been uh, it's been awesome. And this is this is great advice. This is you know I can't wait for my kids to be able to listen to this. And I know there's going to be a lot of other folks going to be motivated and encouraged by the things that you've had to share with us today. You've given us a couple of good books that you've read. Recommendations? Is there anything else that you would uh, recommend in terms of reading list or a book that you've had that uh, has had an impact on your career? Yeah, uh, Never Split the Difference by uh, Chris Voss, probably the best book on negotiating um, that anyone can read. And then I, I tell you, I'm a history major. I think you mentioned that at the beginning. I'm a history major, too, at the University of Tennessee. There's, there's something about it. I loved it. And, I, you know, I, I read a lot of history books. Um, I love I, And lately I've been reading a lot of books on World War II. And, and uh, you know, I love to read them because what I find is whatever I'm going through, man, you read some stories about what some of these individuals, these young, you know, men, women, et cetera, what they had to go through. And man, it just, it puts it in perspective how blessed we truly are on a relative, relative basis. So, you know, anyway, and sometimes it's just good to kind of get my mind off, you know, some, there's only so much business yeah. stuff you could do. You gotta, you gotta kind of, you gotta find ways to, you know, find other enjoyment, if you will, outside of just what we do day in and day out. One of the books I'm reading at the moment that I'm absolutely loving is a, a biography on Andrew Jackson and just his story is unbelievable and just everything that he navigated all the personal challenges the tragedies how many times he dodged death I was like his story is it's like literally miracle after miracle please please tell me send me the author on that um I'd love to see it I, I tell you two books that uh the, the last hill which was a, a book about Ranger unit in World War II okay. unbelievable and then um, against all odds uh, about the top medal of honor winners in World War II was incredible. Under the mountain about the Japanese American soldiers that fought in World War II. Wow. And, and like I can just go on and on and on. So, such such good books. And again, just for us, you know, just to drive to draw derive inspiration. Mm -hmm. The stories of things, and you know, as so many people tell you, the the best of them never came home. You know, yeah. like just the, the stories of the heroism is just staggering to me. You know, yeah. when I think about it. So, well, the it's and it, we have to get on a book club with each other. Oh, we do. And it, the, the, my wife picked up this one with Andrew Jackson. She was over with my kids at the Hermitage here, uh, just outside Nashville. 
and it won the Pulitzer Prize, and she brought it back. She said, I think you'll like this. And I started into it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is one of the best history books I've read. So I'll, I'll definitely put it in the show notes, and I'll send you it your read, way. Did you read the books on uh, Teddy Roosevelt? I have not, but that was actually uh, a recommendation, I believe, by our mutual friend, Orrin Zaslansky. Um, so he's, I think he's reading that one or has read it and uh, recommended it. Yeah, there were, I think there were two or three for the same author on Teddy before he was president, after he was president. I mean, just unbelievable. What, what that guy would do in a, in a given week during a period of time where we didn't have planes, you know, he, you know anyway, it's just insane. What they have, like Churchill, the guy was such so prolific in so many different areas. So anyway, uh, yeah, keep the, good, keep the recommendations coming because I'm always looking for a good, good book on my nightstand. I will do it. Well, you, you mentioned the, um, I've got one final question for you, but before, before we get there, you mentioned about how motivation is so important and you're talking about, oh, it's great to you know, read these books or read this. And you know, as you're going through those tough times, I would imagine that being able to read and have insight as you're, as you're grinding it out, you're waking up and have, may have that panic attack in the middle of the night, your backs against the wall. Why is it important for leaders, entrepreneurs to constantly just be getting that outside extra motivation to continue to go through these challenges? Because it, it can be difficult at times. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think obviously just trying to keep things in perspective, you know, I, w- what I tell you is if if the worst, worst, worst case scenario of, of all the stuff that I get to do, if it just if it all crumbled and fell apart, I have my health, I have my family. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'll, I'll figure out how to, like, I'll be okay. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm literally not trying to take a, you know, a, 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 bunk, a well-fortified bunker, you know, and, and, and in the middle of winter. You're not in the Higgins boat storming Orma, uh, the beach of Omaha, right? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and so, you know, it's, um, it sometimes, and I, in anyway, I do have a tendency to kind of get fairly, you know, focus on and really view, you know, just how important, you know, what the stakes are, et cetera. But, you know, again, all that being said, we really are so blessed to be able to do what we do, where we do it, with whom we, you know, get to do all this work with. So, so from that perspective, again, just trying to, trying to keep it all in balance. And at the end of the day, you know, from my perspective, I try and I'm not always, but, you know, try to be a great husband and I try to be a great father as I know you are and you do. And that that's what that's where in front of you my my real role and job is, you know, is mm-hmm. relative to being able to be there for my wife and be and ideally being some someone that my kids look up at that they draw good lessons from, you know, and kind of recognize that we're gonna have bad days. And, you know, how do you handle that? And you know, and again, I've I over my long, long arc of my career, I'm not saying I've been perfect with it. I've learned so much. I've come so well, I've matured so much. I'm so much better and different today than I used to be. And and I feel like I'm just starting to hit my stride, if you will. I really do believe that I feel like my best days are certainly ahead of me. I get more and more excited about it. But, you know, the, the stakes are so different now than when I first joined YPO and I wasn't married and have kids. So um, and what why I do this is, you know, I really do this in a large part, you know, first and foremost, to care for my family. But I do want to make a positive difference and impact in the areas that I focus on. Life's too short to not have that be part of the remit. And then also to 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 have that positive impact on people that you get to, to work with or that your entities, you know, touch. And mm-hmm. so from my perspective, that's again where I feel very, very blessed because more often than not, I just say just with what we've done with Ipswich, I literally have notes from people all over the world because of the investment we've made there and because of the results that we're seeing with that club in terms of how that affected their lives positively, what it means to them. And so that, you know, that's always fulfilling to see and long may it continue because I certainly wouldn't want to be on the reverse side of it, if you will. (laughs) Amen. Well, as we're ending uh, 2022, we're about ready to enter into a new year. There's been, you know, there's global challenges that are around us. We've got domestic challenges that we as a people are facing. One of the questions I'm asking leaders, uh, final question of the podcast is if you were the president or if the president asked you, said, hey, Brett, I want you to give a State of the Union address to the American people, what would you say? I, my, my State of the Union would be to try to focus on what unites us. I really focus on all the positive. Um, this is a blessed country that we get. We're so fortunate to, to live in. And we, you know, we have our problems. We have our challenges. We have our differences. 
But all, all that being said, you know, this country on kind of one of its worst days is candidly better than almost any country on its best. I mean, and so there's so there's so much here. And, you know, this the world looks to the United States as a beacon for mm-hmm. it. So I, I, I do think that uh, it's a little the political environment to me. The vitriol is a little bit unfortunate. The gulf between certain stances on things is also a little bit of a challenge. I do hope that we can start to have some type of. Um, you know, swing back where it's just, it, it's more bipartisan, if you will. Mm-hmm. I, you know, sometimes there's certain things that just shouldn't be controversial between, in terms of both sides being able to agree on it, and they seemingly can't, which concerns me sometimes. But anyway, so yeah, my if I was writing the State of the Union, it would be to try to honestly figure out a way to find common ground and kind of recognize, for all of us to recognize that this country really is special, but we, we do have our challenges, and there are a lot of things that I feel like we, we have to try to figure out um, how to address because, um, you know, they, they, they need it, if you will. Well, one place where we found common ground, not just in the United States, but globally, was the World Cup, the great game of soccer. And, you know, when you couldn't have seen a better display of it when you had the United States and Iran, you know, playing together and hugging each other afterwards, consoling each other, people cheering, people having fun. So from your lips to God's ears, you know, there's many ways in which we as a global people can kind of come together, find commonality, enjoy life. Uh, at the end of the day, some of our friends have said this many times, but you know, we've got more in common than we have differences. And ultimately people want to raise their families in peace and prosperity. Hopefully their children have a better future. Uh, we can focus on those types of things, and um, we can get some stuff done. Uh, Brett, it was wonderful being able to spend time with you today, and uh, you're you're making a difference in the world by uh, definitely helping expand the, the the world of sport, professional soccer in the United States and abroad, bringing people together, helping us to have commonality, enjoy uh, the similarities that we have, not focused on our differences, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing all the great things that you and your companies are doing. How can people stay in touch with you? Where can they go to learn more information about these opportunities? And are you on socials? Sure. Uh, LinkedIn is usually my preferred sort of. So you um, should be able to find me through Brett um, M. Johnson, my middle initial M um, for Matthew. And then uh, so LinkedIn is probably the best way to kind of connect or reach out to me. And again, should be able to put Brett Johnson benevolent or fortuitous and it should come up. But yeah, no, welcome. Welcome hearing from your audience and I'm suspecting I'll have some some YPOers that I haven't been in touch with. You mentioned Oren and some other guys that probably regular listeners of your podcast, which you know, welcome welcome kind of reconnecting and catching up with all of them. But for anyone who spends the time to listen to any part of, you know, your and my conversation today, I thank you. It's always a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk about what I'm fortunate to do, especially with someone as talented as you in terms of walking through this arc. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. We have a wonderful afternoon and thanks again for your generosity of your time. Happy holidays, my friend to you and the family. So good to talk to you and let's get ready for a great new year. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to our guest, Brett Johnson, for taking time to be with us and for the incredible information he shared. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to your favorite pods. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. It's always appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today. We'll be back here next week with more.